So, because today's Children's Day, and uh, because Pastor Mike decided he would tell a joke, and you know, he's not really all that funny. He's just not. But anyway, so neither am I. But here we go. There was a five-year-old little girl who was coming home with her other grandmother because they had been at the funeral service for one of, the, one of her grandmothers. And uh, as they were in the car driving home after the funeral service, the little five-year-old girl turned to her grandmother and said, where did grandma go? And grandmother thought about it for a minute. She said, well, honey, said, we believe that God came and took her to heaven to be with him. That's where she is. She's in heaven with Jesus. And she then asked, how old was grandma? Now, that's a question sometimes some ladies don't like to ask the answer. And, but she said, you know, your grandma was 80 years old when she went to heaven to be with Jesus. A few minutes later, she then asked her grandmother, well, how old are you? Grandmother said, well, I'm 83 years old. Why do you ask? She thought about it for a little second and said, well, I hope that God hadn't forgotten about you. You know, I wonder about that sometimes, and I think you do too. Has God forgotten about us? Has he forgotten about us? I think sometimes we can come into a place like this and act pretty spiritual, but the reality is I think most of us have had those thoughts. God, have you forgotten about me? Especially when we see that someone else has been blessed and we have not. When something favorable happens to someone or something exciting or something amazing and we see that somehow God has blessed them with this incredible blessing and somehow we are awaiting anticipating and longing praying for something to happen and it just doesn't seem to happen and now it's happening seems like to everyone else but poor little old me and we have a tendency to think that God forgot about me and the reality is that God has not forgotten about you he knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. And God has not forgotten about you today. So dispel and dispense and battle those conflicting thoughts. And somehow when the enemy whispers into our ear that God has forgotten about you, he has not. And as I take a look at Acts chapter 3, verse 17 through 26, I wonder if the Israelites at this point are beginning to wonder, has God forgotten about them? And he's not. If you recall, as we have studied in Acts chapter 1, we see in the very beginning when uh, the disciples were with Jesus and he ascends into heaven, they were told to go and await for the promised uh, Holy Spirit, that they would be baptized with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And upon that baptism, they would then be empowered to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they go to the place that this person called the Holy Spirit was promised. And while they're there, he arrives and he descends from heaven like tongues of fire and lands on them individually. And they are all then immediately receptive or they immediately receive the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that they are then filled with the power and the presence and the person of the Spirit. They receive him and they are filled. And we saw how then Simon Peter then steps out onto that, that porch somewhat 
area and 3,000 who have been drawn by this incredible sound. The Holy Spirit draws them. He proclaims and preaches his first message, having received and been filled with the Holy Spirit, and almost 3,000 people are saved. They begin immediately to baptize those 3,000, and it takes some time. And then we see in chapter 3 how because the church needs a large place to assemble, they're assembling in the temple court. And so as Peter and John are making their way as they have day after day to assemble with other believers in the temple courtyard. They see a man who is lame from birth. And as they pass him, he sees and he draws attention to them and he asks them for alms. And they immediately take upon themselves to give to him what they The only thing they have to give is Jesus. They have no silver. They have no gold. And he says to this man, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he reaches down and he picks him up by the arm and his ankles and his legs are healed instantly as he comes up off the ground. He begins to leap to glorify and praise God. And for the first time, many believe, entered into the place of worship because now he is cleansed from what many believed was the sin that made him physically in that condition. He was cleansed. And so this lame man now is with Simon, Peter, and John, and they are going through the courtyards, and he's leaping with excitement, praising and glorifying God and ascribing to God the glory for the miraculous healing that he has received in the powerful and strong and wonderful name of Jesus. When Simon Peter is given an opportunity then to speak as to why this man is in this condition. And we see in chapter 3 that this man has been transformed by the powerful person of Jesus. Simply by mentioning his name, he is healed. So there's been a transformation, and they are aware that this man has encountered a force that is supernatural. And now Simon Peter, as Pastor uh, uh, said last week that, that he testifies that Jesus is the one who is responsible for the miracle. Simon, Peter, John are not responsible for it. It's Jesus who's responsible. So they see the transforming work of the Spirit of God in this man's life. He's changed. He's different. He's no longer that lame beggar who's been sitting there by the entrance of the beautiful gate for years begging. He's now walking and leaping and praising God and in the temple worshiping with them. They see this incredible transformation. They hear the testimony from Simon Peter and from John that the one who changed him is none other than the one whom they crucified, Jesus. And now he's about to then reveal this beautiful truth. And in this revelation, he's going to say, you too can be transformed as this man has been transformed if you will choose to put your faith and your trust in Christ. And so I want to take a look at the passage this morning, and I want us to quickly sort of dissect these these passages, and I want to talk about the choice that they were given is today the same choice that you and I are given as we are presented then with the truth about Jesus. For we can look around any area, I hope in this room, and see the transformed lives that have been transformed supernaturally by the person and the presence and the power of Jesus. And as that testimony has gone out that it's Jesus who has made the difference in my life. Now he too can make a difference in your life if you will make the choice to trust him as well. 
And in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, we see that our choice involves quickly four things. Number one, it involves realization. It involves a realization. Now, this aspect of realization is, become, is, to, is a point which we become fully aware, fully aware how we got to where we are. You see, you can never make the choice to change and you can never make a choice to receive Christ and to turn and to receive what Christ is offering until you first realize what got you to where you are. How did you get to this condition in which you were in need of Jesus? And so Simon Peter is about to now tell them in the second message, helping them realize how they got to the condition they were in and why they need Jesus. He says in verse 17, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is Christ who suffered, he thus fulfilled. Notice in this realization, he realizes, first of all, as he says that he emphasizes this incredible urgency in this passage, and now, and he's wanting them to realize that time is of the essence. This is a critical turning point. This is a critical moment in their lives that now is the moment in which they are to make their choice. Now is the time of salvation, and now you have seen the transforming work of the Spirit of God and the powerful name of Jesus on this lame man's life. You have heard the testimony that it was Jesus who made all the difference. And now, brothers, it is your opportunity to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. It is now. When is the moment to place your faith and trust in Jesus? When is the moment to finally realize, I need to change my life and choose Jesus? It's always now. And the realization is that we put off decisions sometimes for tomorrow, and tomorrow becomes... The next day and next day become next week and next week become next month and next month becomes next year and next year becomes decades later. And I have seen people who have waited a whole lifetime and have never made the choice for Christ. The choice is now. He emphasizes the urgency. He also empathizes with his listeners. Notice he calls them brothers. I like that. He says, and now brothers. It's important, I think, that as we are testifying and telling people the truth, that Simon Peter steps up the plate and he says, I identify with you. I too am a struggler. I too, like you, am a sinner. I am your brother. I am your soldier. I am relating to you on a personal level. And then he says, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. He expresses their guilt, doesn't he? And he helps them realize that they had rejected Jesus. And like the rulers, they too yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. This was a stark reality for them. And I think you and I have a tendency to think uh, as we listen to this incredible accusation that, that possibly we would not have been in that crowd yelling, crucify him. But the reality is that I believe most of us in this room, if not all of us, would be in that crowd with the rest who were present yelling, crucify him. Why? Because it was our sin that crucified Christ. Who's responsible for his death on the cross? You are. I am. We are. And he exposes their guilt. He then explains the foreknowledge of God. Notice, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the peoples. And I think sometimes predestination and foreknowledge get confused. He says, hey, God foreknew what was going to happen. I want you to realize, he's saying to them, I want you to realize that, that, that Christ's arrest and his trial and his pronouncement of 
some sort of imaginary guilt and then his march to the cross and his, his crucifixion and his death didn't take God by surprise. It wasn't a, a forethought. It wasn't a moment of oops. Uh, I was with Pastor Gale who's on mission trip today and he and I were sitting in a in a service not long ago where the pastor was trying to explain the gospel and he said, you know, God had a way in the Old Testament that he brought salvation by faith through the sacrifice and he made a mistake so he corrected his mistake by sending Jesus as the ultimate and the final sacrifice. There's not a moment of oops. It's not a God realizing all of a sudden I made a mistake and I need to make another way. He foreknew this from the very beginning, from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ has always been in the forethought of God, and he wrote it, and he gave it, and they wrote it in the prophets, beginning in the Old Testament. And so he's saying, this did not take God by surprise. I want you to realize that, people. God didn't go, oops, he didn't go, oh, what are they doing? I'll make something beautiful out of what they have done. That's not what he he did here. He foreknew what was going to happen. He gave the message to his prophets. They wrote it down. You have read it. But notice he thus fulfilled. He establishes now the sovereignty of God by helping them realize that what happened to Jesus was providential. It was something that God acted upon. He, through Christ's death, fulfilled the ultimate and the final sacrifice for those who would place their faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord. Now, what is he trying to sort of, in a nutshell, help them realize? Their need for Jesus. The fact that they rejected Christ and they crucified Christ. It was their sin that placed Jesus on the cross. And if you and I are going to turn from the life that we're living and seek the change that comes through a relationship with Christ, it's imperative, it's important, it's mandatory that we realize that it was our sin. We are sinners. It was we who rejected Christ. And because of our sin, we were the ones who were responsible for his death ultimately on the cross. For he took upon himself our sin and died in our place. Upon him, God put our infirmities upon him. And it's because of you and because of me and because of us and our sin that he died. It takes a realization. Number two, it takes reflection. It's interesting in the text that he now begins to exhort. He, he pushes them to realize that they were the ones who rejected Christ and were responsible for his death. Not just those religious leaders, but you personally were responsible for rejecting Christ and crucifying him. Now I want you then to reflect this, this realization that you have now discovered through this imperative, through this command, and he gives them this command. It's a, a reflection of genuine repentance. Why do I say reflecting genuine repentance? Because repentance can mean different things for different people. And there are a lot of people today who I believe, let me just get the side note here. Repentance today is, is, is an easy commodity where people simply say, well, you know, I'm sorry, God, for my sin. But they go on living the life that they were living before they came to faith in Christ. It's not Repentance. Repentance isn't, isn't saying, well, you know, I'm sorry for my sin and I'm going to continue to live this life for the rest of my life and, and just draw upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. And we've seen in Romans 6, should we go on sinning so that grace could abound? By no means. We need to reflect in a life of genuine repentance where we, in our hearts, in our minds, and with our lives, reflect change. 
For when we choose Christ, there is a change in not only how we view sin, but how we act out upon that sin. It's a change of mind, a change of heart, it's a change of life, it's a change of, of, of every aspect of our lives. It's not a continuation of the old life, it's, it's a complete transformation. For he says to them, notice in the text, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. What's the exhortation here? There's a, an exhortation here. And, and the reason why I use the word exhortation is because it's not optional. It's not an option here. You, you can't choose not to do this and claim to have forgiveness and to be saved. This is not an option. This is an imperative. This is more like a command. It is something that is conditional. You must repent. Therefore, because you finally realize and recognize that it was you who rejected Christ and it was you who put him on that cross, your sin against God is what he was nailed for. It was why he, was, why he died. You must now repent of that sin. And to repent simply means you're going one way and you stop going that way and you make an about face and you reject it. You put your, turn your back to it. You go now in a different way. There's a different way of thinking, a different way of feeling about sin. There's a different way of acting about it. I repent of that sin. Sin. I turn my back on it, but notice he says, and you must now turn back. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Repent and receive Jesus as your Savior. Make him the Lord of your life and follow God. Repent, return, receive. That's the exhortation here to them and to us. If we want to choose Christ and experience the life-transforming power of the person, the presence, and the purpose of God in our lives. But notice also the encouragement. He says, you know, I want you to, rep you must repent and, and you must return and receive Christ. But let me give you some, some, some things over here. Reasons why or explanations or encouragements as to why you you need to do this. Let me, let me give you some, some positive aspects about what happens in your life when you repent and receive Christ. What are some of the benefits? What are some of the blessings? What are the, some of the, the privileges? Notice he says there that there's the removal of sin. When I repent of my sin and turn from that sin and turn and receive Christ and return back to God. There is a wiping of my sin. There is a cleansing that takes place. I mean, on display was this lame beggar who had been sitting by this beautiful gate all of his life, who was believed by many in the church to be there because of sin, has now been not only physically healed, but spiritually cleansed and is now in the temple and worthy of worshiping God. Why? His sins have been wiped out. They have been taken away. He's been forgiven. So you have the removal of sin you also have the refreshing of the soul. There's a lot of debate over what that means, but I think simply what this simply means is that your soul is relieved. The burden is removed. The, the weight is gone. The guilt 
is no longer. Forgiveness is a reality. And you walk with an understanding that you have been reconciled and now you are in right relationship with God and you are rejoicing, you are refreshed, you are revived, you are renewed, you are cleansed by the Spirit of God. And notice the third benefit is you'll be ready for the return of Christ. Because when he returns, he's going to make all things new. And you'll be ready for his return. And so what he says to them is, I want you, once you realize that it was your sin that took Christ to the cross, you must now reflect an authentic repentance of your sin so that, notice, he then says, I want you to do that because (laughs) there's something very important that you need to understand that if you choose not to do that, There are consequences to that, which leads us to our third point, recognition. Recognition. Because you see, there are always consequences to our refusal to realize where we are and what our need is and to repent of our sin before God. There are always consequences to that. There is a payday someday, so to speak. Notice that he says in the text, Moses said, the Lord will rise up for you a prophet like me, for from, for from your brothers, you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaim, proclaimed these days. What is he saying here? He's saying, first of all, I've been called by God to be a messenger. He's revealing to them. Notice the words like me. Those are huge words in the context of this message. I am like Moses and like Samuel, like the prophets of old. I have been called by God to be his messenger. Why was it important for Simon Peter for them to understand that he was God's messenger? Because you see, if he wasn't God's spokesman, they would not receive his message. And he's saying, like Moses and like Samuel and like all the ones in the Old Testament prophets whom God raised up to reveal this Messiah who is coming and who has come, God too has raised me up and he has called me now to be your messenger. So you need to listen to what I am saying because I am your messenger. And that's huge even today because there are so so many self-proclaimed messengers How do you know which is the right messenger to listen to with the right message or not? And so then he says, not only God has called me to be your messenger, but I'm commissioned by God with a message. And what is that message? That message is Jesus. But if you notice, that message is also about judgment. Verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Judgment is a part of the gospel message. I think the reality is that so many times when we're presenting the gospel, we talk so much about the benefits and the blessings of the gospel that we forget that there are consequences to rejecting Jesus and the gospel. There is a judgment that is coming. 
For one of these days, the trumpet of God will blow, and the dead in Christ will rise, and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds, and we will be forever with the Lord. But those of us who do not know the Lord will not be caught up together with those who are in the Lord to be forever with the Lord. We will be in that great cloud of witnesses described in the book of Revelation who will stand before God being held accountable for their rejection of him and for their sin that has not been removed. And he will be forced to say, depart from me. I never knew you, you doers of iniquity. Why? Because they have not trusted in Christ and they have not escaped the judgment or the punishment of sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the wage of sin is, is death. There is a payday someday. There is a judgment that is coming. And we must recognize what's at stake if we are to then understand the the importance of this decision because if I fail to receive Christ and repent of my sin, then there are consequences to that reality. Eternity always hangs in the balance for those who receive him as well as for those who reject him. And for those who reject him, they are condemned already. And the importance of that recognition is huge. And Peter talks about that to them. But then fourthly, he talks about then representation. As we look at the text in verse uh, 23, we see you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Notice in this representation that he's asking from them because, you see, repentance brings a representation of the fact that you are no longer walking and living in wickedness, no longer living in sin. He says to them in verse 23, the call of God is clear. What is the clear call of God? To them, these he's addressing, these who are in the courtyard, in that, that temple courtyard on that day, listening to Simon Peter proclaim and preach the second message, having received and having been filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, you are sons of the prophets and you are the recipients of the covenant that God made with your fathers. And that covenant began with Abraham, didn't it? That covenant began with Abraham. And God made a covenant through you for you. What was that covenant? From the seed of Abraham would come the incredible blessings of God. And he is revealing in this sermon, I'm not sure the whole sermon is written out here. It would be a little bit longer than what we have here. But I think he's saying to them in this message that Jesus Christ is the seed that God promised by which their descendants would see their nation blossom. Be blessed. Jesus is that promised seed. God had made a covenant with them. And God was still pursuing them. Even though they rejected him, God is still pursuing them. Why? Look at the text. Notice there are two times in verse 29. uh, I'm sorry. In verse uh, 25 and 26, there's a word there that, that that is an important word. It's the word blessed. The word blessed. Now, in verse 25, 
That's a, that's a translation from the original into the English to help us understand a little bit better what is being conveyed there by the thought of the original writer. But in verse 26, we see word per word that word to bless you. To bless you. Why did God send Jesus to bless you? To bless you with him eternal salvation. That's why he was sent. He was sent as a blessing. It's not a, you know, I, I think sometimes, and, and I get the whole idea that, that, that the Christianity is a cross and that it's difficult and it's a burden and it's hard and it's tedious and, and definitely is a narrow road versus a wide road. I get all of that. And, 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 and we talk about that a lot here, about the about the, the hardships of Christianity and the difficulties of living the life and the persecutions that come and all of that. But what about the blessing? And the blessing that comes, the favor we receive because we have been reconciled with God through the death of Jesus on the cross. For by grace you're saved through faith and that it's not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God. A beautiful gift. Mercy and the grace of Jesus. We have this beautiful blessing called salvation. And we are a blessed people. Turn to your neighbor, look him in the eye, and say, you are blessed if you know Jesus. Come on. You are blessed. Now look him back in the eye and say, well, I'm not feeling very blessed today. Well, then do what we always say when people say that. Bless your heart. You know what I'm saying? I was with a... A uh, pastor this week that I knew from uh, Hartsville, South Carolina. He's a great guy. He's now on staff in uh, in South Carolina on the exec on the staff of the state convention, and he's about this tall, and uh, he's uh, really a neat guy. And we just have a great time. We get together for about 15 minutes at the convention in wherever we meet, and. Uh, and so we were talking about a certain person that we both knew from, you know, our last town where we served together in Hartsville. And uh, we had this little saying, bless his heart. Now, whenever somebody uses that to describe you to someone else, that's not a good thing. It's not, is it? Well, bless his heart. That's not a good thing. But here in this text, you are blessed. And I wonder why we don't see the blessing of the choice of Jesus more often. I did a wedding last Sunday. I wasn't supposed to do the wedding, but I did a wedding last Sunday. And uh, I was the preacher by default. And my niece... um, the guy backed out at the last minute. I mean, an hour and a half before the wedding. How'd you like to be a part of a wedding where that happened? Luckily, there was a spare preacher on hand. Okay? I was it. And uh, it was a good thing because I had married her mother and dad 35 years earlier in First Baptist Church, Grand Prairie, Texas. And uh, I don't know if you know the story. Some of you don't know. But my niece, who got married last Sunday, her father died 11 months ago, and so the reason why she wanted to get married on Father's Day was in memory of her father, and the reason why she got married on Cape Fear, (laughs) literally, uh, in front of a lighthouse, 
uh, was in memory of her dad because they went there multiple times a year because that was their favorite vacation spot. And so God in his sovereign provision had me there available and ready to do the wedding. And 35 years earlier, I had married her mom and dad. And so it, it was a great thing. Turned out beautiful. And um, so I did a little research on Cape Fear. And I wondered why they, called, why they called it Cape Fear. Cape Fear is a coastal plain in Tidewater region of North Carolina, centered about the city of Wilmington, North Carolina. It's in the very southern tip of North Carolina, almost in South Carolina. The region takes its name from an adjacent Cape Fear headland and do, as does the Cape Fear River, which flows through the region and empties into the Atlantic Ocean near the Cape. The origins are unclear, but the name goes way back as early as 1590s. Maps were uh, marking the point as the Cape of Fear. And according to historian William Powell, the name apparently had its start in 1585 when the English ship Tiger on the way to Roanoke Island settlements near, nearly wrecked on a beach called the Cape of Fear. John White, governor of Roanoke Colony, had a similar experience in 1587 and repeated the name. And sailors have, have, have tried to avoid that for forever in that area of the bay. To call it Cape Fear, I don't know about you, but just calling it Cape Fear inflicts fear doesn't it? And there have been a lot, of, a lot of efforts in recent years to change the name, but they've been unsuccessful. And the reason I bring up fear is because I think often when we recognize and realize where we are and what got us to where we are, the first thing that change often brings is fear. The reason why we persist in our lives the way that we do and the reason why we settle where we are and the reasons why we don't take risks and move from where we are to those unknown places that God wants to take us in these beautiful blessings is primarily because of fear. I have often wondered that possibly the rejection of Jesus was more out of fear than anything else. What keeps you where you are spiritually? Fear. Fear of the unknown. Well, if I follow him and I step outside and I repent and I, and I return and I receive and I begin to move with Christ, where is this going to take me? I'm not sure. I, I'm, you know, I know what I got here. It's not good. It's not the best. And it's uncomfortable. And it's maybe not where I need to be spiritually. But at least... I know what to expect. I know what to anticipate. I know, I know a lot of things about where I am. And yet, God is calling us to realize why we are where we are and what change needs to happen as we place our trust in Christ and to repent of whatever it is that's keeping us where we are and to move toward Jesus and to make the choice for him. And if you've never made that choice for him, I know it's a scary choice to make. And it'll bring incredible change in your life. But let me tell you about the blessings that come as a result of your choice. They're 
beyond measure. They're more than you can ever expect. There are hardships and challenges and difficulties and things you give up and things you have to add. And there, I get all that. There's a cross that you have to carry. But the blessings and the benefits far outweigh anything that it may cost. And so your next step today is to push aside the fear and to choose Christ. Maybe you've chosen Christ But for whatever reason, you've allowed yourself to be bogged down in in an area in which you shouldn't be camping out for very long. And there's aspects about your life that are not really pertaining to the life that Christ has called you to live. And we too, if we are Christians, must continually, daily, if not moment by moment, repent of those things that are holding us back, no matter how comfortable we may feel with where we are. Overcome the fear and turn from those things that frighten us to death because there's great blessings in store for those of us who will take the next step and make the choice for Jesus. Let's pray.